It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 824, the 24th of February, 2023. This week, the internet has lots of rabbit holes that are good for passing time, enjoyment, and sometimes education. Let's take a look at a few. In Short Circuits, an email that appeared to be from a high school classmate asked for a favor. It's been several decades since we graduated and the request seemed odd. Then it got odder. If you prefer to maintain a clean desktop, you might find Microsoft's repeatedly adding an icon for Edge a bit annoying. I'll explain how you can make it stop. And 20 years ago, only on the website, adding a photo to an email today is trivial. 20 years ago, it wasn't, and a $40 program offered to help. A lot of people waste time on the Internet. I'd say everybody instead of a lot of people, but there may be somebody somewhere who doesn't wander around the Internet aimlessly. All this wandering around makes me think back to when libraries had card catalogs. Remember library card catalogs? Serendipity occurred there when the user found a card for a book near the card the book they were looking for. I'm not sure if that's feasible with today's online catalogs, but wandering aimlessly on some sites can be relaxing, amusing, and even educational. What's not to like about that? Wikipedia is probably the largest rabbit hole. Whether you're looking for one of the sieges of Thessalonica that occurred in 254, 617, 676, 1185, and 1422, the recording career of Muddy Waters, Lyndon Johnson's 1964 Daisy political ad, or the life story of a porn star, male or female, you'll probably find it in Wikipedia. Another treasure chest is How Stuff Works, where you can learn the difference between sugar and white sugar, why the number 137 is special, how long squirrels live, and why multi-factor authentication is important. You'll find links to each of the sites that I mention on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. How products are made explains how products are made. Big surprise there, right? But the site hasn't enabled secure HTTP, so I haven't included a direct link on the website. Doing that would cause most browsers to report that my page is not secure. So just copy the link and paste it into the address line of your browser. You can learn how beer cans, beer, and barbed wire are made, or read about how bedsheets, cough drops, and vinegar are created. Dictionary, thesaurus, and Merriam-Webster are helpful when you need a definition or a word with a similar meaning, but just wandering around can be fun, too. Merriam-Webster updates a list of the top 10 words people are looking for every half minute. On the 23rd of January, endemic was the word of the day, and the top 10 words people were looking for were abomination, faction, pusillanimous, woke, advocate, conjectures, metaphor, apathy, dragonfly, and abbreviation. There are also quizzes that check both the fun and educational boxes. In which came first, I learned, to my surprise, that chillax, dating from 1994, entered the language before dumpster fire, 
which didn't come along until 2006. The Internet Movie Database is more useful only if you're a member, but basic memberships are free. You can find out who acted in a movie or a television program, what other programs or motion pictures they've been in, and whether they've also worked as a writer, producer, or director. For television programs, you can find out whether it's available on a streaming service. If you're looking for news without a bias or a paywall, there are several options, including the Associated Press News, the BBC, National Public Radio, and Reuters. Thinking with Type is another site that hasn't enabled HTTP, so if you want to visit it, you'll need to copy and paste the URL. You can learn about the anatomy of letters, capite, excite, baseline, stem, ascenders, and descenders, bowl, spine, ligature, serifs, and more. There are also articles on publication design, text, editors, markup symbols, and proofreaders' symbols. Make Use Of covers hardware, software, and tech news primarily, but there are also sections labeled Free Stuff and Lifestyle. It's an excellent source of information on a wide variety of topics, such as 8 Ways to Fix Slow Boot Times in Windows 10, 12 Video Sites That Are Better Than YouTube, and even 10 Free Mobile Ringtones That Sound Like Real Phones. You'll find a sample complaint letter for when you don't know what to say, 17 commercial failures from brands with spectacularly bad ideas, and please don't press any buttons when you get a spammy robocall on the Consumerist website. It's operated by Consumer Reports. There are categories for articles on retail services, education, crime and fraud, data and privacy, pharma, and more. If you're looking for reading suggestions, take a look at Goodreads, where you can share your opinion of books that you've read, keep track of books you want to read, and download free or low-cost books that frequently are from new authors who are trying to build an audience. ProPublica bills itself as investigative journalism in the public interest. The site has well-investigated and carefully written articles, such as websites selling abortion pills are sharing sensitive data with Google, how Congress finally cracked down on a massive tax scam, and what to know about the risks of gas stoves and appliances. And finally, at least in my little section of rabbit holes on the Internet, Google Maps might be the rabbit hole to end all rabbit holes. Want to take a look at Pyongyang, North Korea? Well, there aren't any street view options, but there are some photos of transit stations, shopping malls, and parks. If you want street views, check out Belfountain, Ohio. New York City, London, Berlin, Tokyo, Canberra, Paris, Barcelona, Moscow, Rome, and even a few limited areas in Beijing. Combined with the free Google Earth application, Google Maps can easily consume an entire day as you travel the globe virtually. And to return to the library card analogy, yes, you can scroll through a library's holdings. Find books to read at local libraries, and you might be able to borrow e-books from more distant libraries. For example, I live in the Columbus area, where more than a dozen libraries are part of a consortium that shares physical media. I prefer e-books most of the time, so I also have library cards from Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Dayton, in addition to Columbus, Worthington, Upper Arlington, Grandview Heights, and the State Library of Ohio. I can't borrow physical books from the distant libraries, but they do offer access to electronic media. That's helpful because sometimes one library will have a book I'd like to read and the others don't. 
If you're looking for a way to amuse yourself or you'd like to learn something new, there are hundreds of websites you can turn to. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In Short Circuits, you receive an email requesting a favor. It appears to be from someone you know, but it might be a scam. Let's take a look at one such message that was a scam and deconstruct it so we can determine how the scammer did it. The message appeared to come from a high school classmate. Well, except for class reunions, our paths have crossed seldom since then. The subject of the message was favor, and the text said, How are you? Hope you're good. I want to ask for a discreet assistance. Do you order gifts and items on Amazon? If you check the image on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see that discreet was spelled D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E. -E. I'm sure the writer wanted my discreet assistance, but spelled D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. But that kind of misspelling is common and doesn't account for much. Asking for my discreet assistance, and then asking if I order gifts and items on Amazon, not from Amazon, raises a flag. Might not be a red flag, but it's definitely yellow. Then I noticed the sender's address. The from address was the charter.net address that I know is his. But then I noticed the reply to address. The username was nearly the same, but it had a numeral 1 at the end, and instead of being a charter.net address, it was a gmail.com address. I could think of no reason that the person the message claimed to be from would have to provide a different reply to address. The yellow flag shifted a little toward red. So I replied. Sorry to be overly suspicious, I wrote, but scams abound. Please tell me something that will prove you are who you say you are. A reply came quickly, almost as if he was expecting that question. But it was from the Gmail address, not the charter address. Lol, the message said. We went to the same high school. Then he offered the correct high school name and the correct graduation year. That might have been convincing, except that the message had come from the wrong address. So I sent another reply. Okay, I wrote two more questions. One, why are you using a Gmail address instead of your charter.net address? And two, what exactly are you requesting? The response? Silence. Crickets, nothing, zero, null, dead air, goose egg, zip, nil, not, nada. You kind of get the idea, right? The message clearly had come from a scammer, but what was the game? 
It's hard to say, but asking whether I order gifts and items from Amazon suggests some sort of commercial scam. Perhaps the approach would be to tell me that he wants to order something for his wife or girlfriend. It's a surprise, though, and she'll see it if he orders using his own account. Could I order the item and have it shipped to him? He'll send me a check for the full amount and a little extra for my trouble. The check might never arrive, but by then he would have whatever it was that I ordered for his wife. That could be the ploy. Maybe not. He might double down on the scam. Perhaps I would receive a check and it would be for far more than the purchase price. Let's say he wanted a $2,000 computer for his wife and would include $100 for my trouble. But the check is for $3,100 instead of $2,100. What then? Well, of course, I could return the extra $1,000 by purchasing a gift card and giving him the number. Just go ahead and deposit the check, the scammer might say. I want you to have your money as quickly as possible. So now the scammer has a $2,000 computer that I paid for and $1,000 that I've given him for the overpayment. I have a check for $3,100. Seems fair, doesn't it? Won't I be surprised when the bank tells me a week or two later that the account the check was drawn on had insufficient funds, or that the account doesn't even exist? Again, I don't know that this is the way the scam would have played out, but it is one way the scam could have played out. So I didn't play the game. Maybe you're wondering how the scammer did it. Well, the original message did come from the ChartedNet account. I checked the routing headers just to be sure. So that suggests that the crook had managed to place malware on my former classmate's computer or had gained access to his online email account. That would give the scammer access to my classmate's email where he would find messages regarding class reunions. Unfortunately, the person who sends class reunion messages places all addresses in the to field instead of using the BCC line. This provides a list of potential victims as well as information about the high school the recipients attended and what year they graduated. Just like discerning what the scammer's intent was, figuring out the methodology is simply a guess, my guess. But the situation and actions described would work. This is why every message should be considered suspect until the sender proves its legitimacy. I keep just a few icons on the desktop. I'm annoyed when applications don't offer me an option to decline a desktop icon and instead just place one there. It's even worse when an icon is placed repeatedly on the desktop, even after I've declined it. Case in point, Microsoft Edge. Edge is a decent browser, but I prefer Vivaldi, which, like Edge, is based on Chrome. I also have Firefox, and I have icons for Vivaldi, Edge, Firefox, and Opera on the taskbar. On the taskbar. I don't want icons for any of them on the desktop. And yet, there it is. Every time an Edge icon appears, I delete it. But Microsoft repeatedly restores it, apparently, when Edge is updated. 
Two of the other icons on my desktop look like they're for Vivaldi, and they will open a Vivaldi browser, but they are links to browser bookmarks and a perpetual calendar that I created a few months ago. The other icons at the top of the screen are links to a directory for the APO equalizer that needs to be reinstalled after every Windows update, a list of complex passwords I can use if I need one, GoodSync Explorer, DOSBox, and a graphic showing portrait lighting techniques. Lower on the screen, there are links to restart and shut down the computer, a link to cancel the shutdown or restart process, the recycle bin, and a link to Qtr with my preferred arrangement. I don't want an edge icon on the desktop. It annoys me. Perhaps you've seen what I do with annoyances. Even if it takes an absurdly long time, I find a way to eliminate the annoyance. Well, as it turned out, the research was fast and the correction was easy, although it does involve a registry edit. Information about the registry modification is from GHACs. You'll find a link to that site on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And it affects all four channels, Stable, Dev, Beta, and Canary. If you want to block icons from just one channel, GHACs describes the process that involves using globally unique identifiers as parts of the key names. And since we're getting into a registry edit here, the standard warning applies. It basically boils down to be careful. Microsoft seems to place a new desktop item whenever Edge is updated. The real solution to this annoyance would be for Microsoft to stop doing stupid things. Because that's not likely. The solution involves adding a key to the registry, and it's an easy key to add. Start by opening the registry editor and drilling down to HKEY Local Machine, Software, Policies, Microsoft. If you find no Edge Update key there, and you probably won't find one, right-click Microsoft and choose New Key. Name the key Edge Update. Create the new key as a DWORD 32-bit value. The default value should be zero. Double-click the key name to open a dialog box just to confirm that the value is zero. Now, when Edge is updated, Microsoft will no longer place an icon on the desktop. Note, though, that you may need to repeat this process following a Windows update. That's conjecture, because Microsoft hasn't been willing to say anything about the process or the annoyance. There are no extra icons for 20 years ago on the TechBiter Worldwide website or your desktop. In 2003, adding a photo to an email message required an expensive program. The company that made it disappeared without a trace sometime between then and now. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. Mm -hmm.